Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest today is my friend, my colleague and mentor, Andy Vincent, who I've known for over three years. And I thought it might be best, Andy, because I won't do you justice um, into saying it myself, if you maybe just introduce yourself, your qualifications, what you've done over the last however many years you've worked in the fitness industry. Oh, well, um, hello. So I've been in the industry for 20 years. I'm not going to list qualifications because I, I, I actually can't remember most of them. But I started, <laughs> as, I started in exercise to music, worked in small gyms, worked in David Lloyd, went into fitness management. And then I decided I wanted to really focus on one-on-one training. So moved to London and that's where I kind of consider myself to my personal training career to have started. And then, yeah, I was just surrounded by amazing fit pros and just th- this desire to learn so at that point in time i went off now i started listening to qualifications went off and studied with athlete performance at the time poliquin group ukca weightlifting and then deviated off and did biomechanics with gary ward i spent four years learning his anatomy emotion model then started getting into nutrition so did my precision nutrition my biosignature and then, yeah, and then it's kind of just gone on from there. So studying, being around amazing coaches, reading, learning just became a part of who I was as a coach and who I've, what I've really enjoyed about the industry. And I think that's always what I've admired in you. Like from the very first time that we met and we started working together, what I admired most in, in the way that you practice is whilst you have such a huge like toolkit of of knowledge um, that you bring to your job as a PT, you're also always hungry to learn and you're always kind of researching something or reading something or or taking on board a new piece of research or or understanding something in a slightly different way. And I think that really instilled in me that idea that, you know, whilst where I'm at right now, I'm, I, I think I'm a good coach, you can always be better and there's always something you can learn. And it really does make you a better coach all around because none of us are experts. There's always stuff coming out and things to learn. And, and, and I think that that growth mindset is so crucial to being a great coach. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting as well. Cause when I first walked into gyms in London, I've been a coach for, I've been in the industry for seven years. I just wasn't used to 
walking time. And I remember first Phil Learney and was just like, how do you know so much? And then I was just like, right, you are now my new best friend. I need to learn from you. And then I guess maybe at some point in time, I thought I knew it all. There might have been some young arrogance. And then as I started to learn more, I was like, wow, there is just so much to learn. There really is... A, what you think you know doesn't stand still, that's going to change. And there's always new stuff, even like new fields coming out. Mm. So it's it's exciting. I guess it can be quite daunting to, to young coaches. I'm always, I've always got a podcast on. I've always got something on. I start my day with an hour of studying. It's just part of what I love about the industry. Also, if you're a career trainer, you don't want to be doing the stuff you were doing 10 years ago. Like any career, you want to develop and learn and be sort of not even ahead of the curve, just making sure that you understand what's coming out because you're in it for a long time. If you're doing the same stuff you were doing 10 years ago, it's it's both boring and probably going to be outdated. So it's the sort of thing yeah. you have to be on top of. Completely. And, you know, that's one of the things that I really wanted to discuss is the fitness industry has changed, I'm pretty sure, quite dramatically over the time you've been working in it. You said you've been working for 20 years, which I didn't want to mention because <laughs> I thought I'd let you say that. And across that time, I'm sure it's just changed so much. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about some of the key changes that you think have really impacted the fitness industry. And those can be both both positive and negative. Yeah, I mean, so totally talking from my own uh, experience, the, the, from I qualified in 2001. And back there, there was, if you were studying, you were just going to sort of like the, the regular mainstream places to study. It wasn't, there wasn't the phenomenal volume of courses that there are now. And there wasn't, I guess, it wasn't seen necessarily as a really big, lucrative career. So with that, nowadays, there's, there's become so many courses, which is good and bad because I, I've done a lot of courses that I walked away going, oh, I've done way better courses or they're kind of cherry picking information here a little bit. And everyone has to create a course and make out that their way is correct. But we're talking about the most complex individual thing on the planet, which is the human body, the human psychology. So it's so hard to say in absolute anything about the way that humans move. We, there's certain things that we do, certain things that we can put our Probably sort of say that we know definitely but there's a lot of things that's still being researched finding out new stuff so it's I, I remember coming out of courses thinking right that's it that's the coach that I'm going to be from now on this is it I found the right way and then six months later studying somebody else and be like oh that's interesting that's different that goes completely against what I've learned and spent my entire early days of my career when I was restudying getting really confused and really frustrated and, and questioning what I knew and what I didn't know and was I a bad coach? Was I, was I some sort of idiot? I couldn't retain this information and, and all this stuff was going on. And then as I've got a bit older, I've become a lot more confident in the fact that you aren't going to know everything and all you can do is uh, work to the best of your ability. I guess fast forward now, we've got, when I was a coach early days, when I was just learning my trade, I could affect 50 people if I was a busy coach. Nowadays, you can be a very inexperienced coach with a huge audience affecting a massive, massive volume of people. I'm not saying these coaches aren't good coaches. They're just young coaches. And like we all were, we're just learning their trade. So they'll probably go through the same experiences that I did where you read something, you think that's gospel, and then you're you're telling that to your how many followers. And actually then six months later, you realize that, oh, that's not true. Or that potentially isn't the only way to view that particular subject. What do you do? You totally change your ethos and go back on what you said, or do you just stick to what you're selling? 
because sometimes it's around products. So the beauty is there's loads of information, there's so much research. Obviously, I've started working more with women recently. So the last five years, it's amazing the volume of research come out about that, which is fantastic and a huge, huge plus. There's so many research or there's so much courses out there that certainly there's no issue with finding an interesting course to do. It's then the ability to stand back and critically think about what you're learning, because a lot of it isn't science fact. It's going to be someone's interpretation of the data that put the course together. And potentially that may not sit with your practice as a coach or your belief systems as a person. There's lots of things out there that I just don't believe in. So it can get quite daunting. It can be quite uh, frustrating. But yeah, as a young coach, the sad thing is, or the worrying thing is, you can affect a lot of people with potentially what could be quite misleading information. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that I've tried to really work hard to kind of move away from is definitely five years ago, when I look at myself and the stuff that I post, you know, I look back at it now and I cringe and I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I put that out there. And I think it's difficult when you have an interest in fitness, you're really passionate about it. And none of this stuff I doubt with these people who have massive followings, you know, myself included, there's a hunger and there's a passion about fitness and there's an enjoyment there. And that can then translate into being like, well, I just want to share this with everyone because I love this stuff. And the difficulty then lies when, as you said, you sort of then talk in absolutes, which because you're so biased towards your own, you know, the things that have worked for you or what you do that you enjoy, that you then start to talk in those absolutes and it becomes a bit less relatable. And definitely in my case, I think I had a real turning point when I moved to third space. And I think that was such a pivotal point in my career when I went from working in a small private gym where, you know, I thought I was pretty good to then suddenly being in this space where I was surrounded by some of the top coaches in London and being like, oh, okay, I don't know anything. <laughs> and it was a really humbling experience. And, and yourself being one of those people, Luke Worthington being another, who really showed me like a different route and that like even that you never act as an expert or a guru, you know, you don't appoint yourself guru status as some do in the fitness industry. You are someone who comes in and says, this is where I'm at now. I'm happy to change my opinion. I'm happy to be challenged on things. And I'm sort of going to work through my PT career, just adding bits in and taking bits out as I go along. And as, as the research, I guess, did dictates. And I think I do find myself getting really frustrated online sometimes. And I really have to take a moment to not bite on things like that because I've been there. (laughs) And I think that's one of the really important things I have to remind myself of is, you know, I think we've all been that young, feisty, hungry coach. And I think really what what helped me was, was to recognize that, that, you know, it's almost that Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? Where you sort of think you know loads and then you start to learn a bit more and then you realize you know nothing and you sort of fall into that place where you're suddenly like, oh God, there's so much I need to learn. But I think that's what's, that's what's helped me to really, I guess, create more of a, a relatable and approachable style of content rather than, like I said earlier, appointing myself this guru status because I've got a massive Instagram following and suddenly telling everyone this is how you should do stuff. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a funny journey. And I think Instagram, social media, all these things have really disrupted, helped hindered lots of things, the fitness industry. And I think we're still just working out what what really is, you know, good and bad if there are such extreme, you know, it's not, it's not as binary as that, but good and bad stuff in the online space. Yeah, I guess that if it's driven by social media or just driven by the fact that people today, we want information quickly. We've always wanted results quickly. So you've got this kind of need for quick results and we just read headlines. And we're talking again, and we're talking about if it's, I don't know, it's, uh, nutrition, or it's, it's training, 
it's such a complex, like we're studying it all the time. We're learning. There's career coaches with way more experience than myself that spent their entire lifetime researching and studying this thing. And there's still, and I, and good coaches will stand there and say, we don't understand that. We don't understand everything. Mm. So uh, to try and put it into one line in an Instagram post is, is a real challenge. So mm. I see why it's sexy to do things that are quick and easy and not everyone wants to sort of like go into the detail with it. I don't know what what seems to drive it, but a lot of the kind of stuff I see, I get frustrated with. I'm like, you're just a massive oversimplification of a really complex topic. And I get it. It's an Instagram post, but I'm not sure we're helping people by trying to oversimplify it. And I think like you said, like I think most coaches will go through those three phases. They'll learn early that this is amazing. I'm really excited. I want to help everyone. And then they'll start studying and be like overwhelmed with the sheer volume of information. And then the sort of third stage is that actually you can't know everything. Just be comfortable with what you do know and be comfortable with the fact that you're going to be studying for the majority of your career. I think when you're in that sort of third stage and you're able to sort of step back and sort of talk a bit more openly and honestly about it, I think at that point in time, the information becomes better because it's like, this is my opinion based on anecdotal evidence plus the research that I've looked at in the subject. But by no means am I saying this is definite. This is just mm. what I believe to be the correct way to do things. Mm. If the language was more like that, then I think we'd be in a better place. But I'm not sure that goes back to the start of this point, which is it doesn't always fit headlines and this desire for yeah. sort of quick information. Sometimes it's not as sexy, but that kind of more balanced approach is actually what people need to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Like, I guess... Hey, I'm not selling like off the shelf programs, so I haven't got to worry about it it's because mm. I'm not. Try- I'm not trying to sell like mass amount of people through a program. So mm. that sort of sexy stuff sells things. But I think after a while, when people have tried all of that, they get to the point. It's like there's got to be a different way of doing this rather than mm. being off on quick fixes diet. Mm. And then at some point in time, you're like, maybe there's a more sustainable way of doing this. It's a bit more balanced and slow and methodical. At that point mm. in time, they'll look for accounts like yourself, myself, and, and other people like, like Luke. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know this podcast usually centers around stories of strength, and obviously you are a strength coach, so you're in the right place. But I think one of the things that I really wanted to go off on today is is really strength through knowledge and how empowering yourself with knowledge can actually be the best thing that you can do. And so I wanted to basically use today's episode to go through and debunk a lot of fitness myths that we hear floating around. It's going to be a fun one. (laughs) I have eight that we're going to go through. Hopefully we have time for all of them because I know you and I can just chat and chat. But I thought what would be good is basically to, yeah, to use this as a space to kind of take those, those sexy headlines, like you were just talking about, those big grabby headlines um, that we see online and, you know, in the press and, and kind of just break them down a little bit and talk about why they might not be as, as as clear cut as people try and make make them out to be. So I'm starting with the biggest one. Yeah. The biggest one. So I asked you, Andy Vincent, is it as simple as calories in versus calories out to lose weight? Whoa. <laughs> uh, it's such a tough one. Uh, like, yes and no. Ultimately, yes to increase body weight you need energy ultimately you can't energy can't be moved it has to be transferred so to lose mass you have to take energy away and to create mass you have to increase energy so at a base level it is correct so we can simplify it down to yes for that but the complexity to it is phenomenal because there are other things ultimately one thing knowing that yes that is correct the other thing is actually calculating and knowing what those numbers are is 
borderline impossible to know because of the, just the wild complexity that is the human body and the variability of all of us from genetics, from our gut microbiome, which can be both genetic plus environmentally changed, our hormones, it's changed throughout our life. So for a woman, it depends on her part of her cycle, obviously nutrient quality, how that affects our psychology and our behavior towards eating. So yeah, on one side of things, we can simplify it right down and say energy in versus energy out at some level is going to be or is the primary focus. It will be mm. what creates the drive for, let's say, losing weight. Mm. That doesn't mean you can calculate it online and run with a tracker and you're good to go because there will be other things at play. And for some people, it works perfectly. So for some people, you can just go online, get a calorie calculator, they track their macros and bang, they hit it. And you hear a lot about those stories. You don't hear so much about the stories. They tried it, but it didn't work for whatever reason, for the huge, probably the billion reasons that could happen internally. What do you think? Well, I think it's a really interesting one because I think it's become it's become oversimplified, basically, as you said. One of the things that frustrates me is that I think that simplifying things down to calories in versus calories out, absolutely, for some people, that will work. And for some people, it will be as easy as literally just monitoring or, or tracking in some way what they're putting in versus what they're putting out. And they're able to lose lose body fat should that be their goal and should that be what they want to try and achieve. I think what it then writes off is a much more complex picture of health. One of the things you touched on there was nutrient quality. I think often, and this isn't speaking absolutes because there are people who will also take these things into account. But I think on a basic level, what I tend to see is there being a, a slight disregard for nutrient quality, which I think is important for overall health. I think it forgets things like, or it doesn't include things like the importance of sleep, the importance of recovery, the importance of the relationship with food that one might have. And also, I think you're absolutely right. We hear about all of the success stories from calories in versus calories out, which makes it a very easy sell. But I think that for a lot of people, it just isn't as simple as that. And it can make people feel like a failure, like they aren't doing enough or they aren't being as dedicated enough. And what then tends to happen is the calories get a bit lower and then they get a bit lower. And, you know, I think it was Emma Story Gordon who said recently, you know, most of the people that come to her wanting help are on like 1200 calories a day. And it's just, it's just mind boggling that it can become as basic as people thinking that that's the golden number that they need to be hitting, regardless of all the other complex information that has to be taken into account in order to elicit, you know, physical change. So, I think you answered it really, really well. And I think you actually gave the perfect answer for what I was really hoping for you, that you would say is on a very, very basic level. Yeah, of course, we can kind of look at it like that on an energy and energy out balance. But it is a hell of a lot more complex than that in reality. And I think that those who will try and make it as simple as calories in versus calories out don't have the experience to know that a lot of the time it's not as simple as that, basically. Yeah, 100%. I think as well, like like you say, it worked for some people. But I struggle with people that, that just bang on about it over and over again is like you obviously to get success through your business, you're taking in a particular kind of person. Whereas if you've got someone with a history of disordered eating or many other reasons for people to really struggle with it, then they're going to really fail on that type of program. For starters, measuring calories out is impossible. It's mm. like, unless you're in a lab, that sort of data is just so wildly complex to calculate. 
So mm. we've got these arbitrary numbers that come out on our fitness tech. And I think that drives us into this belief that, oh, look, actually, I can get a number for calories out of my watch. Very inaccurate. And then I've got, I can track calories. Also very inaccurate. And I hear these sort of things that people online say, well, because there's always the coaches will say, for any coaches against calorie tracking, wouldn't you, if you were trying to control your finances, you'd try and you'd make sure you were budgeting. And I was like, that's a terrible analogy. Because if I'm with my budgeting for my finances, I've got pinpoint accurate data. I can go to my bank and gives me absolutely everything. Well, tracking is somewhere between like 30 to 50% inaccurate. And I don't mm. think how inaccurate calories out calculators are. So it's like yeah. the analogy is terrible. Again, we're just trying to oversimplify things. I imagine to try and get people into their business model, which is calorie tracking, my fitness power, that kind of stuff. Mm. I do think we I need to understand that, like you said, nutrient quality is important. A calorie is a calorie, but we need to remember as well that a calorie is a man-made unit of energy. Actually, it's a, it's a unit of heat production associated to food. So there's always the argument that that's not how food energy interacts with the human body at a cellular level. We're still researching this stuff. So it's like, yes, calories is important to understand, but also understand that calorie burn through heat production isn't actually how the human body interacts with the energy that we eat. It's also quite important. And those sort of low calorie, we've all we've all worked with clients, or if you've been in the game for a little bit, you'd have worked with a client who's on a 1200 calorie diet. That is that, that is just like the number that seems to be churned out for most people. Mm. And the reason it won't work is it is brutal to do and therefore will lead to, if not already started to see done some sort of disordered eating pattern and definitely will, will lead to binges in eating. So mm -hmm. it's like just by saying calories in, calories out, giving us on a low calorie amount, then it's going to cause a real struggle to maintain. So it's not necessarily the calories in, calories out equation that becomes the issue at 1200 calories. It's the lack of sustainability of that particularly low amount of energy. And then it's like, we're not realizing that the weekends are going really overboard. And all you actually would need to do is bring that calorie deficit down to a much more, just a softer, just nowhere near as aggressive a deficit. And then be very honest with someone and say, it's going to take a while. It's going to be measured and we can make changes to it. And, and it's talk to them and coach them through how to negotiate eating out, how to negotiate cravings. Talk to people on a personal level, on a, on a, on a human level, not on a spreadsheet. Because last time I checked, no one ate food because of numerical protein. They ate <laughs> it with their eyes and their senses because it's enjoyable as a social thing that we do. Yeah. And just going calories in versus calories out, we're just negating the fact that we are human beings and we're not actually robots. Absolutely. Well, I think that was a perfect answer. And I think no, 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 it, it really was. It really was. And, and I was literally doing little like fist pumps when you were talking. My second one is basically one of the things I probably get messaged about almost on a daily basis. I'm pretty sure you do too. But the myth that weight training will make you bulky. And I just want to reference this actually with that when I get messaged about this, it's often from people who have started to weight train. And within like the first two weeks, they're like, oh, I've, I've been weight training for two weeks and I can really notice like I'm bulking on my thighs or something like that. And so I'd love to hear your kind of response to that. And really on a more scientific level, what we understand as bulking and, and, and why that really isn't physiologically possible within that shorter time frame. Yeah, so we've also touched this before, so we'll go through it again. But effectively, let's simplify it right down, and we'll, we'll go a bit sciencey as well. You place a stimulus on tissue. So basically, weight training is placing force through the joints, force through the connective tissue, the muscular tissue, 
And in response to that uh, stimulus of force, the body has to either lay down new muscle fiber or strengthen and rebuild the muscle fibers that are already there. So we're either repairing or regenerating new muscle fibers. And this kind of idea of we create a stimulus, it lays down, it usually at first is just going to create stronger sarcomeres to deal with that force, sarcomeres, uh, muscle fibers. It takes a bit more time to lay down new muscle fibers, so to actually increase in muscle mass. A lot of the changes at first are going to be around coordination, so it's more neuromuscular, so the central nervous system, the brain, the nerve connections, the ability to actually activate certain muscles. There's a lot of skill involved in it. So a lot of the early stages are motor learning, the skill of working with weights. This will take time, a lot of time. When when you work with clients like you and I have, and we're looking at increasing muscle, the time course is, if you're trying to get someone to lose 10 kilos of body fat versus increase 10 kilos of muscle, we are talking maybe a threefold plus more time frame to do it easily, in fact. Mm. So what actually happens short term? So always know that the human body is going to adapt to be able to deal with the stresses we place upon it. So we know when we train, we create damage to the muscles. And what happens when you bash your finger or you create any damage to your body is you get localized swelling. The body will bring plasma to the area, water to the area, and it will deal with the recovery via inflammation. Also, because weight training uses primarily glycogen, so carbohydrates as a fuel source, the body will also store more glycogen within the the muscle mass itself, so within the legs or the arms, wherever you're training, to be able to deal with the stress of the next session. So we're always trying to adapt to the stimulus. So that can be as much as that can be laying down with muscle fiber, that's also going to be storing more glycogen and water in the muscle to be able to deal with the stresses that are weight training. So what we get from the people that say they started gaining weight or noticed an increase in their thighs over two weeks is effectively the muscle is just swollen because you've trained it and therefore mm. it's damaged. So that localized swelling is what we class, kind of classify as sarcoplasmic hypertrophy so it's just the storing of plasma in the muscle for men training of course it's like the thing they love it's like they chase the pump and in in male circles of training it's like they get very depressed because it only lasts like 24 hours but obviously with women it's a complete reverse because they're trying to lose body fat and and decrease let's say the size of an area so 24 hours up to 72 hours later of swelling isn't ideal Plus the fact that if you're training regularly, which hopefully people are, that swelling is not going to go anywhere because you're retraining the muscle the next few days. You're in this constant cycle of your muscles kind of being damaged and under a state of repair. So it's trying not to respond or react, sorry, to short-term changes, knowing full well, I just said a time course of at least three times, it's actually way more than three times the amount. It's it's a very, very long, slow process building muscle. And I think absolutely, as you said, and you, we've referenced it a couple of times across the podcast, you know, people want quick results and instant kind of change. And so often what I see is, you know, they'll do two weeks of, of weight training and suddenly look in the mirror and be like, oh God, you know, I haven't quite got what I wanted to, to achieve. I haven't lost any body fat or my, my legs look bulkier. And I think often it's really just a patience game. Weight training is a patience game. <laughs> nothing in fitness I think comes as quickly as people want it to but I think if you're in it for the long-term sustainable 
end goal of training for life, training to be fit and healthy, whatever those mean to you. I think that it really is about having patience. And as you said, not reacting to short term physiological changes. You're 100% right. And this is going back to the kind of the question you asked me about what is the frustration or what is the things that are in the industry is, is anyone talking about quick results? is skewing people's perception. They're thinking there's something wrong with them if they're not losing body fat in a short period of time or they're not seeing results in a short period of time. If we were just honest and say, it takes years and ultimately you're going to hopefully love the process, enjoy the process, start to learn to love the process anyway. And you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life because strength training and and weight training and training as a whole is something we're going to need to do. It actually, as you get older, you need to do it more. Or you mm. certainly need to do it as much. So yeah, training for life, being patient, that's just the most important message to for people to hear. And I think actually, and this wasn't one of my points, but I kind of am going to shoehorn it in here because we're around the subject, is that a lot of people use exercise as the only vehicle for them to lose weight. So, you know, we've talked about energy in versus energy out balance. Typically, what I see is people will only start exercising when they have a weight loss goal. And when exercise might not elicit that goal or or fulfill it in, in as quick a terms as they wanted it to, they give up on exercise and say, oh, well, it was rubbish. It didn't work for me. You know, I just got a bit bulky. And so they, they sort of give up on it after a couple of weeks. My frustration following on from what you just said is exercise really shouldn't be there for, for, for weight loss. It's not really, when we look at the bigger picture of, of what, what facilitates fat loss, it's not really like a big portion of the pie. And actually what we should be using it for is the uh, retention of muscle mass, physical strength, health, you know, all these kind of things. And unfortunately, it's just not, it's just not seen in those terms for so many people. And I guess that's where the frustration also lies. Yeah, and everyone likes sticking a bit of research onto their blog or post these days. It's literally one of the most researched things in exercise, sport and exercise science, is how poor exercise is as a modality for, for weight loss. Yes, it's, exactly. It's almost, it's almost irrelevant. Without a nutritional intervention, exercise is just not a very good me- measure because you, you can't out-train poor nutritional choices sadly so we get again we're going back to these headlines of burn off that fat from these workouts like burn a thousand calories in the workout train a harder for a short period of time it's like it's really skewing the message a that's not possible mm-hmm. on one hand there's research into certain forms of training that talks about how the benefits of it for fat loss and and there are certain training modalities that will be will burn more calories per unit of time but it's time bound. So it's time bound to, let's say, an hour. So an hour, four or five times a week versus the rest of the waking hours that week. It just like think, step back logically from that. It, it doesn't make sense that you could even touch the sides with it. So the conversation needs to be then about actually, what do you enjoy with training? What, what you, why are you training? Do you train because it's sociable? Do you train because you want to get stronger? You're thinking about like the long-term health of your body. Want to add some muscle mass? Want to get more flexible? Want your joints not to hurt in the morning? All that stuff's great because that that stuff training can do. That works brilliantly for it. And then nutrition, lifestyle, sleep all plays into the fat loss part of it. So again, it goes back to we just need to be a bit more honest with people about what we're telling them on social media like 1 million percent 
sat here like furiously nodding. I yeah, <laughs> couldn't agree more. My next one is actually, you know, one thing that we just touched on really, which, which is, you know, the more training you do, the better results you get. I think this really feeds into my gripe with the fitness industry. And actually, I think, you know, slowly, slowly, I can see people moving away from this. But it was this that like no days off mentality, you know. And if I had to say, you know, I t- talked about the bulking messages that I get, the, the second probably most common message is people who find it really challenging to take a day off from training. And it probably feeds back into what we were just talking about in terms of if they're just using exercise as a way to burn energy, taking a day off for them feels really difficult and there's guilt associated with it. And I thought we could maybe just discuss why I'm kind of putting the answer into your into your, uh, into your mouth now, but why more training doesn't really equal better results. And this is an interesting one. And I, and I have to say that I was there. I've done that. Me too. Don't worry. Yeah. It's not just to say that like people doing that are, yeah, there's something wrong with it. I spent years doing it that way and came to realize that this wasn't actually the right way of doing it. Like you say, yeah, hundred percent. It often comes from what is the, what's the why behind the reason for, for being feeling like you can't take a day off. If it's driven from, if I don't train, then. I'm not going to be successful with my goals, but with fat loss, that we've we've discussed that actually that isn't the case. If it's because mentally, like you want to train because it really helps with anxiety and those sorts of things, is there are other types of training that you can do so you can still move and actually rest. Ultimately, like we touched on it with the the increasing muscle, the the we place stimulus on the body and we recover from the stimulus so we can do it again. So it's that recovery unit that is imperative if you want to get better, stronger, faster, more mobile, whatever it might be, you need to recover from it. Because even like intense bouts of stretching can make you sore. If you've ever done a really hard yoga class where you've just done long pauses, like it makes you sore from it. So all Mm. types of training place stress on the body and do need to be recovered from. If it's intense enough, it will need to be recovered from. So we're in that sort of mindset that, Again, calories in, calories out. So I've got to burn more calories, train harder, uh, train every day. Because calories in, calories out really only works if you move a lot every day, if that's the mindset. So it goes back to the the sort of flawed message. And actually, if we're thinking that, no, think of yourself like an athlete. Think about what training delivers, what are trainable qualities that uh, we want from the exercise that we do around building muscle, getting stronger, getting more mobile, becoming pain-free. Every single thing that you put into the trainable qualities that exercise delivers will come from recovery afterwards. So you place stimulus on body, let body recover, uh, and that becomes the missing component to that whole thing. So you get, and it's really, it's really common. Uh, as much as I appreciate, we've got a lot of people that aren't motivated to train. So obviously, we've got mm-hmm. to use that end of the scale. But for those that are in there, they're sort of on this uh, this hamster wheel of just kind of like churning through sessions is oh i don't want to do rest today i'll go for a run and they get into the weight session and they're just like oh god i feel really tired i can't really lift today and it, it's just doing stuff rather than being very sort of yeah. switched on to it and uh, recovery is just such an important part of it we'll be back after this welcome back to give me strength And also just being in a constantly fatigued state. And and we know, you know, look at things like REDS, relative energy deficiency syndrome. You know, these are things that are starting to become more talked about. But 
overtraining, it's not just, sorry, when I say overtraining, I guess what we really mean is under recovering is probably the better terminology to use, but not allowing your body to fully recover from training actually has, you know, deep rooted implications in your, in your health. So you're right. It's on, on the one hand, it's just a, a conversation around the quality of your training. But I think on the other hand, it's also a bit of a kind of, you know, if you do these things and don't allow your body to fully recover, you know, your immune function can be, um, impacted your menstrual cycle, you know, you're probably going to have a higher risk of injury, your ability to sleep well, you know, all of these things are are definite signs of, of the body being under too much stress. And as you said, you know, exercise is a stress on the body. A lot of the time, if you're able to recover from that, it's a great stress. But sometimes and, and, and with many things, there can be too much of that. And I just think it's a it's a conversation that really needs to be had in more of a wider context, i.e., you know, yes, okay, you might feel a bit tired and you might not feel great in your next session, but you'll just push through. But do that on a repetitive basis. And it's not just about being a bit fatigued. It's about, okay, this is starting to have in, in, an impact on your physical health. Yeah, I think we just we forget as well, don't we? Life is stressful. Like, mm. So on one hand, if, if you're dealing with a, I don't know, a 20-year-old athlete, you can put a phenomenal volume of work through them. So they can do twice-day training, six days a week and recover from it. Because they're not business people, they haven't got kids, they haven't got work stress, they haven't got all these things that are stressing us out. Poor sleep, maybe we drink alcohol, other nutritional choices we make, which could be driving. So low energy deficit is stressful to the human body. So we've got all these overlapping stresses. And then we start whacking exercise on top of it, which is, when done correctly, is a great stressor. But we just are forgetting the fact that there's a, there's a finite amount we can recover from things if we are busy people with other things to be doing. And in it, it will have a knock-on effect to lots of things, sleep, cognitive function, uh, mood, depression. Mm, it's yeah. super, super important. To, mm. It hasn't got to be a complex juggling act. Just be mindful that how you feel, switch your mind on. Think about how you're feeling in the morning. If your mood's not great, and you go to train and you're like, oh, you know what? My output, like so if, I'm, if I'm going for a 5K run, I just feel tired and slow. Then back off and just hit the brakes and walk and recover and just do some breathing. It's that ability to be in the moment and make adjustments to what you're doing and not just be driven by must burn calories or there's some sort of mm. guilt not training that kind of wonderful word mindfulness but if you can if you can be more mindful more switched on to the, the signs your body's given you then you can manage recovery just as you go rather than needing to be like overly complex absolutely i'm gonna have to plow on because we've still got a lot to get through um, this is short answers no, no, no. This is probably my favorite one. And I know that I felt a real frustration recently with HIIT training. I'm going to say it. <laughs> and I remember jumping on a call with you. And this is why you've been such an amazing mentor to me is I can have these rants to you and we sort of break it down and we talk about the research and and you really help me to rationalize my frustrations. But I thought I would come in with a big one, which is HIIT is the best way to lose weight. Well, we've already said that we know that's not true because yeah, yeah. without a nutritional intervention, it's it's impossible. And I think that's basically got to be the umbrella over the top of HIT. It's like in a calorie-controlled diet, in a rested person, then yeah, then HIT per unit of time can burn more calories. But most of those other two things aren't occurring. So mm. then HIT becomes less because, again, we're thinking when we talk about 
exercises that are stressful, the harder you train, the more stress you place on the body. So you've got one of the more stressful types of training going into potentially what could be an under-recovered human being. And like anything, if you're in the world of fitness and you read research, I think you and I are the sort of people that when I see an article, I will click on the research, I will go to it, I'll read it. I want to know sample size. I want to know the method in which they used. And I want to think about who that would be applicable to. A hit's amazing. Like it's a phenomenal type of training. Just jumping in though, can I get you to caveat what you actually mean by hit? Yeah. I think that's that's a really important differentiation. Yeah. So ultimately when you go to the research and you go down and you click on the button, you click on the link to uh, to PubMed, the typical types of training that will be used will be low skill. It will be bike sessions and sprint sessions, track sprinting or treadmill sprinting sessions. Reason being is they're low skill and the output per unit of time can be very high and they're controlled. They're not, they're not the sort of things that there's too many variables to, to work on. So you can find like a huge body of literature around here and pretty much 99.9% of it will be done on bike and treadmills. I think there's like one piece of research that I've managed to find that's not a pretty great piece of research into body weight hit training. And the, and the reason being it's, which is this too hard when you're trying to, if I'm trying to work my legs as hard as possible, when you're trying to think of all the benefits of hit around mitochondrial density, improving insulin sensitivity, all those sorts of things, I need to take a muscle and work it absolutely hell bent. Not necessarily like completely full out, but like 90, 90 to 95% max. You just can't do that doing box jumps and burpees. There's just too much complexity. There's mm. too much skill. So a lot of loss of intensity goes into the sheer volume of what you're doing, mm. the amount mm. of additional working sets that are required and the complexity of the exercise. So there's a huge disparity between what the research uses as far as a method and what general population are doing so hit training is used a lot within sort of athletic populations but again it's always bike and it's always track treadmill mm. it's like i use a few different analogies on this it's like me saying hey i can do a squat to increase leg strength but you know what i've not got a squat so i'll do bench press so therefore bench press increases leg strength that's mm. effectively what it looks like when you see the research that's been done and the way people use it, it's like, well, you just, it's just cherry picking the headlines, but changing what you're doing in the session. Modality. Yeah. Modality. Can I just jump in? Yeah. Because I think one of the things that, that has become associated with HIT is, first of all, it's a sexy name, high intensity interval training. So it already sounds cool. It sounds like something you should be doing, like I should be doing HIT. And the second thing that I want to add to that is you're absolutely right. The differentiation you've created is HIT in its truest form, i.e. the stuff that's in the research and where all the kind of positive benefits of doing HIT come from are only on or 99% on bikes and with with track sprints. The difficult thing is where body weight hit workouts are touted as having the same physical benefits, but without the actual modality being the same. But, and why I wanted to jump in was, what feels to those people as high intensity interval training is just someone getting them to do lots of jumping around in various different forms so they feel that they're working really hard, but whether that elicits the same positive physical responses that true hit is touted for 
is just not not the case. It doesn't happen that way. And, and the thing is, I also want to say, I am totally fine with people loving here. I think people think I hate it. I don't. I am all for a quick blast of doing some burpees and stuff. Sometimes that stuff makes me feel great and I'm totally there for it. And I absolutely would love, if that's the way that someone likes to train, them to carry on doing that. And I wouldn't want to be someone that says, oh, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, both you and I have said throughout this podcast, you've got to find a way of exercising that you enjoy. And if body weight, you know, plyometric exercises is what you enjoy, great. I think where my issue lies and your issue lies, which we've had long conversations about, is people seeing it as, firstly, the best way to lose weight. So they have to put themselves through what they feel is the hardest way to train in order to elicit a fat loss response, which, as we've already discussed, isn't isn't the case without a dietary intervention. And then secondly, that they feel they're getting the physical benefits, i.e. things like, you know, I've heard like EPOC and the physical adaptations that, that, that are reported from True Hit that are then transferred onto body weight hit. And, and they're saying them as if they get those from the way their way of training. I know that seemed very wordy, but that's like my frustrations with it. And I just wanted to clarify that it's not about hating on hit. I know that both you nor I would, would say that at all. I think it's really just about the language that we use around it. And one of the most crucial things is, is, is the narrative that we, we create around certain types of exercise. Hit is fine. It's great. It's going to make you sweat. Is it the best way to lose weight? No. Is it the best way to train? No. Is it, you know, fat burning? No. <laughs> In many cases, it's not. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's really frustrating. Oh, I love it. That was very concise. You said wordy, but I thought you were very good because I was going off at a bit of a tangent. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you said it with real, um, real passion. passion. I love it. Um, can you um, tell? I can tell. It goes fired up. People um, get very upset when you start con- questioning how hard they're training it's not to say what people are doing in hit sessions isn't hard it's just not intense at a muscular level a lot of the benefits of hit will come from like i said localized fatigue of muscles and the way that people do body weight hit is a global exercise selection burpees box jumps there are they work a lot of things at once i'm not saying there's not benefits to it like it's effectively body weight interval training that's cool that's a great way to train you just can't send state that it does the things that hit in the lab do because that's just a wild assumption that, that happens that there will be some benefits but there's not the benefits of hit and if you like doing hit great just make sure that it is well ideally if you've got access to a bike or a treadmill do it on there treadmill be a bit be careful because you've got to go very fast if you like doing body weight style training doing things like burpees great but just maybe dial back the intensity because ultimately a lot of these hit sessions are they're too long true mm-hmm. hit if you look at the research is usually it's certainly under 10 minutes it's usually under four minutes it's really hard so if you're telling me you're working flat out for four minutes and you're happy with your four minute workout at home and you left nothing in the tank and you're honestly saying that's what you're doing then absolutely fine if you're doing 15 minutes a hit, you're basically now doing a higher volume form of training. Bear in mind, you could just take this to about 30 minute session to 20, 30 minute session, dial it back a little bit, moderate uh, or modify the exercise selection. So you're not doing exercise that potentially could damage you if you're jumping around. And then you've just got a nice cardio circuit, but let's not try and kid people. They're doing a hit when they're not, they're doing body weight circuits. That's fine. It's not sexy. And you're telling me that you would be doing it as much if 
certain Instagram celebrities and, and fitness celebrities were saying bodyweight circuits. That yeah. Interval training. It doesn't sound quite sexy. So yeah, we're getting we're getting sold on a name, uh, cherry picked information and research. And it's funny because things like epoch occur when you walk up the stairs. You walk up the stairs and you feel a slight burn in your legs. Then an epoch happened. It's but it's so negligible as well. Happens. Yeah, it's just negligible. It's making again. It it's putting a little bit of information out there. It makes people sound smart, and it's like it's it's painfully small amount. It happens in, and that's another thing when you look at the list of things that the benefits of here. I'm like, that's actually just the benefits of exercise. Full stop. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I want to say is. You know, you see a lot of before and afters of people doing hit. You know, they've done they've they've done the before and they've done the after, and people go, "Oh, it, it was the hit." You know, it was the hit that did that. And 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 yeah, of course, any increase in energy expenditure, as we've talked about, is going to elicit a physical response and and can help with fat loss. But without a nutritional change, it's not the hit. It's everything else that you're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's almost impossible to say. Let's say in that scenario, someone goes on right. So let's say you're successful with your fitness and your uh, your fat loss goals. Mm. So you start a 12-week program in which, let's say, you've got a good coach who's modified your sleep, nutrition, training, hydration, vegetable intake, fiber intake. Mm. Who's to say which one of those variables was the primary driver? Yeah. We know from the research it's not exercise. So let's say you've made all those changes. I'm putting a lot of weight on the, the everything else except hit in those changes because they're bigger players that as far as what occurs, like mechanistically in the human body, they've got a bigger driver towards your outcome than your, uh, your 15 minute hit workout did. <gasps> Mic drop. Love it. Moving on. <laughs> okay. Uh, next one. What do we actually mean by a fat burning workout? And what definitely isn't in this category? <laughs> oh, oh, God. Uh, I keep it really, really short. Everything, even sitting at your desk, is a fat burning exercise because your muscles are working to keep you posturally in a position. So every single thing you do can use energy bearing in mind as well we don't actually burn fat most of the energy that expels to the body comes through human waste and our breath and some heat production so the mm. word burning by itself is a little bit misleading so anything that uses energy is then fat burning so mm-hmm. going for a walk having a shower running weight training they are all energy using exercises and therefore could fall into that that sort of like media tagline but without the presence of negative energy intake off maintenance none of that is going to occur mm-hmm. and i think yeah that that's that's the thing and and that's why i put that what definitely isn't this on the end is that you can call basically anything a a fat burning workout and i think what I want people to understand with that is, you know, when someone says 10 minute fat burning workout, my brain goes, well, how do you know it's fat burning? Because if that person, you know, it will be, but if that person isn't in a, a in a deficit as such with, with their energy intake, then how do we know that they're actually losing body fat? It's almost one of those things where like, it's such a, it's such a sexy buzzword that we see, you know, online in the media, as you said, but really when it comes down to it, I think it's such a gimmick key term and it really annoys me actually i i, I do it, it really annoys me but i think what's really useful 
and I'm going <laughs> to be careful I say this, I guess. If someone you're following uses the word fat burning in that context that you just said, I'd unfollow them straight away because they are lying to you. They either are a young coach who's still learning their trade or they're trying to sell your product. Because there's, if you've spent a bit of time in the game, you've done a nutrition, a nutrition qualification, you'll realize that's not true. Fat burning, to, to know that it's fat that's being burned, then ultimately the conversation we had about recovery, really the only time you're probably guaranteed to be burning fat is during the hours that you rest. So as an exercise modality, bear in mind that most exercise uses glycogen as a fuel source, carbohydrate. Straight away, it's misleading. So you're making this assumption that the person must then be in, like you say, a calorie deficit, that they are uh, getting enough sleep and recovery to promote fat loss, that their health and wellness is, bear in mind that fat is a very, very energy-rich source on the body. So the human body, it doesn't get rid of it easily. So we've got to be looking after ourselves for it to happen. So there's just too many factors involved to guarantee fat loss. It is just literally a buzzword. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to move on. We're going to have to, I've got three more, although I might cut one of these because we can um, do this. We can do this. Yeah, we can do this. This is, this is our favorite topic though. And, and uh, I'm going to go uh, into it. it. Is your fitness watch lying to you, Andy Vincent? <laughs> Tell me. Oh, um, I've got so I've got myself in so much trouble by having such strong opinions on this. Yeah. So I, I'm going to come in straight away and say I wear a fitness watch. I wear an Apple Watch, and I me absolutely too. love it. I wear it because it helps me to stay active throughout the day. I love the fact that I sort of get up every hour for a little bit of a move around when I'm sat at my desk for a lot of the time. I love the fact that it tracks, it, it almost gamifies my movement. And I think, I'm going to say this now, I do enjoy wearing it. I think the difficulty lies, and I know you're going to go into this, so I'm just going to say it briefly. The difficulty lies in the accuracy, I guess, of the tracking of energy expenditure, particularly during training, right? Yes. And I'll, and I'll second what you just said there. I have one. I, I I broke mine and had a gap in using and gapping having one and I hated it and I bought a new one and I love having it for all really? the reasons you just said. I use it in the small this morning because I slept poorly, had a cold shower and I put the breath thing on. It was amazing for that. Mm, mm -hmm. Tracks my steps, gets me walking, reminds me to do things. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, going back to the very start of this conversation, human body wildly complex so if we're using a calorimeter in a lab to measure energy expenditure then then you're in a lab setting there's lots lots of variables they try to manage those numbers when we're trying to work out base metabolic rate that's super hard to do again and then yeah we've got this watch that can measure supposedly our calorie expenditure and give us a number now i'm pretty sure everyone out there is aware the watch struggles with distance. So if you go out with a Strava app on your phone and whatever fitness tech you've got on your wrist, you are very, very likely to get two quite different numbers. They'll be quite far off often. So that by itself, measuring distance is a very basic thing. So if you can't measure distance, why do we think it's going to be able to measure something as insanely complex as calories. And then I, because a lot of people are like, oh yeah, Andy, but everyone knows that, but they don't. You mm. might know that because mm -hmm. that's, that's great for you. Um, mm. I've lost count of the amount of times that I've spoken to people and said, that's probably not accurate. They're like, what? But it says it's accurate on the website. And then you go to the website and it's like, yeah, but based off ECG um, data, 
ECG is nothing to do with calories. So it runs through an algorithm. And when I did a ton of research back maybe three years ago, I looked to see if I could find as much data as possible on the accuracy um, of watches if they'd been put up against lab tests. And at the time, they hadn't. And then two really big pieces of research came out of the States and pretty much hammered home what I had believed that they struggle with heart rates. So effectively, the, the data in wrist watch, sorry, the technology in a wrist watch is medical grade to measure your heart rate. But of course, in hospital, your heart rate is resting heart rate. So a wrist device will struggle with anything in an exercise heart rate range. So it will give you accurate data on your resting heart rate, but it can't on exercise heart rate. So again, we're now we're starting to realize it can't do distance. It can't accurately give you heart rate. But now we're still thinking it, it gives us accurate calories. So it has to run through an algorithm. Um, it's very, very clever. I'll give you that. It's inaccurate in itself, though. So yes, if you did a, a workout and it was the same workout one day compared to the next and you burnt more calories, then yeah, you worked a tiny bit harder. That's great. So you can tick it as a, yes, I trained harder. But I would take the actual numbers not seriously at all. Certainly not as it then compared to food. Mm. I think it is really important to caveat that with, you know, in no way am I saying that I don't really enjoy my Apple Watch. I think it's just to take that data with a pinch of salt and to maybe not use it as obsessively as I think some people do. I think, you know, the the thing that I really try and encourage people away from is the kind of, you know, checking your, your wristwatch as a reflection of the quality of training session you've had. Do you know what I mean? Like looking at your watch and saying, oh, yeah, good session today. I burned X amount of my watch is telling me I burned X amount of cows. And that's a reflection of a good training session. I think, you know, when I'm with my clients, one of the biggest thing that I will get them to do is, is almost just, just I just tell them to ignore that number for the session. Like it has no reflection of how how hard you're training, really. And actually tune into what your body's doing, you know, focus on, you know, the intensity that you're putting into your into your exercises and across the program. And, and at the end, deciding your head whether you think you think you had a hard session or not regardless of what your watch said and you know sometimes that might be that you know have a day where you don't wear it for a session have a day where you just take it off and you think okay I don't need to know that that data today I'm going to just challenge myself to maybe do a session without it and just see how you get on because I think that's that's probably where the biggest issue lies is this reliance on data as a way of feeding back how, uh, the quality of your training session yeah 100% I think you touched it there that Calories is not why we exercise. That's not, I appreciate that's what the industry skewed our belief into it. But we go back to what we said already that we are all athletes. If you train, if you're a human being and you train purposefully, you are an athlete. Calories you burn through movement are irrelevant. Think about what you're training for. Are you trying to get stronger? Therefore, you've got, can you do push ups? You could do one, now you could do five. Brilliant. You're going for a run. You started at 30 minutes for 5K. Now you're doing 26. Fantastic. Mm. If you're doing cardio style circuits, monitor your recovery heart rate during your rest periods and your recovery back to baseline after activity. Amazing. Mm. You're getting fitter. Your heart, your lungs, you're getting healthier. All mm. measurable data that actually your watch can help you with it, with recovery heart rate. So tons of cool stuff that you can do. Calories out is just one of those things it's just a nice little oh yeah by the way also 
as a nice little extra boost, exercise also burns calories. That's effectively what we want to start saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to move into my final one. Now, we actually have kind of covered this a lot here, but I would say that it's probably one of the most common questions that I get asked. And I think it is worth having a conversation around it to wrap up. A lot of these themes, like I said, have already come up, but let's discuss it. Do you have to do cardio, cardiovascular exercise, in order to lose weight? If you like it, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You can do anything. Like, like, So you don't need to do exercise to lose weight. If I've Mm. got someone come to me, I'll use my mum as an example, who's 74. If she came to me and said, Andrew wants to lose some weight, I would not be making her do cardio. We would talk about her nutrition. We'd talk about her sleep. I try and make sure she's active, taking the stairs, all those sorts of things. So exercise comes about because we are sedentary. So we are sedentary most of the day, so we have to make up for those bouts of being sedentary by doing personal forms of activity. You want to make sure that you enjoy it because the more you can do of it, I know we've spent on recovery, but let's was talking as a whole, the the the, the the planet isn't moving enough. So I know we spoke about recovery. So most people mm. though need to be moving more. If they enjoy cardio, fantastic. Do yeah. yeah. If you don't enjoy cardio, don't. If, for me, if, for example, I'm not mad keen on doing tons of cardio. So if you told me I had to do cardio for exercise, I'd really struggle with adherence. So ultimately, adherence is the most important thing. Being consistent with some sort of moving as part of your overall week is the most important thing. If therefore cardio falls into that love for you, fantastic. Mm. I know people will say it burns more calories. We've already said that is irrelevant um, in a situation where energy intake hasn't been modified. So, Mm. um, yes, if you enjoy it, crack on with it. If you don't Mm. enjoy it, there's so many other things you can do. You can go dancing. You can do daily walks. You can do strength training, yoga, Pilates, Tai Chi. It really doesn't matter. Yes, I appreciate some of those forms of exercise don't burn as many calories. We've touched on that as well. It doesn't matter. Energy intake through food is going to be the primary driver moving your body doing something you love or finding something you love number one importance oh music to my ears i i think as well it's 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 actually nice now that we've gone through my list to kind of summarize some of the key themes that we've really brought up today and i think at the heart of it really is that one you just touched on enjoyment of what you're doing is so crucial and you have to enjoy it. And and if we are looking at long-term health and long-term sustainability when it comes to the way we choose to move, it really does fall down to, are you doing something you enjoy? Regardless of whether that is, you know, in in, in quotation marks, the most effective uh, form of exercise to get you to your goals, it really it really is the most important thing, enjoyment and, and really being able to stick to that long-term. And I think the other thing to come from it is really around just you know the constant fat loss narratives in the fitness industry it's really hard to scroll through instagram and just not feel affected by the bombardment of messaging around exercise solely being a vehicle to lose weight you know as we've discussed in, in this podcast it's a fat burning hit workout or it's a calorie torching, you know, all, all this kind of language. And it has an impact. And I think, you know, why I, I love so, so much working with you, Andy, and then this chat has just been so great. And I know we've gone on for over an hour, but it, it's been amazing. 
because really, you know, this stuff is all such surface level gimmicky stuff. And yeah, okay, you can be drawn in by it. And I think this is really where I was. You get drawn in by the big sexy stuff. You try it for a bit. It lasts for a while. But at some point you have to step back and question, okay, well, I can't be trying to lose weight for for forever because one, it's really not healthy. And and two, like, it's just not possible. You know, you, you will go through peaks and troughs and whatever across your life. But two, you need to be looking at a bigger picture and a more long term goal. And that's not to say that you can't have short term fat loss goals. Absolutely. Like those things are going to come up across your life. And I would never negate someone's desire to to choose whatever they want to do with their body. That's not my place. But I think really, at the same time as that, or simultaneously, being able to step back and look at the bigger picture, um, and being able to, to look at enjoyment, be able to look at recovery, ignoring a lot of the gimmicky stuff and really thinking, well, what serves me best? I think all of these things are so, so important. And ultimately, like you said, you know, if it is that you want to lose or gain weight, don't look to exercise as the way to do that because we we know it's a much more complex picture and that nutrition plays such a huge part in that. Yeah, you made so many really good points there. The thing about enjoying it, so I'll just I'll go through a few bits. The thing about enjoying it and our conversation about HIT, I know people do really enjoy HIT. So again, so I would not say that I would say not to do it because you then followed that sentence by saying, can you do it long term? So that's what I would throw back at people that are doing a lot of hit and saying, can you train like this long term? Could you be doing this when you're 60? And if so, great. Like, and you want impact to those sort of things, like jumping in, in your workouts, because it's good to have those sorts of training. Just shouldn't be mm-hmm. the only thing that you do. And, and you want to check your why. Just make sure there's, I do it because I really love it rather than I actually believe this is the best thing. Because it's like you said, I think sometimes people, I certainly have taken on clients recently. They almost feel when they're talking about their goals to feel a bit ashamed to want to lose body fat because there's sort of a message saying we shouldn't want those things. We should be happy what we are. It's okay to want to lose fat and to change your body. That's 100%. It's your choice. It's your body. It's your decision. Appreciate it. It takes time. Um, it, and it hasn't got to be one of these things that you just stick a time course on because ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to start to eat a certain way, look at exercise from this wonderful thing that we should be really privileged that we're able to do and we can do forever because we can keep getting stronger, keep getting fit because when we're 60 years old, that's just super, super important. And mm. what you weigh now is a snapshot in time. You've got your entire life to work on losing a bit of body weight and then maintaining that weight. The sort of subliminal messages that come out from it all the, in, the, in mass media around words like fat burning and, and all those sorts of things just make us believe that we should, we're should we almost ashamed to want to change our body shape sometimes, mm. but also on the flip side that we're bombarded by these ways of burning body fat. So we mm. just, like, just get really, really confused on what to do. And if, step back, I, I made a sort of sentence around how exercise is is only necessary because we are sedentary so if we can just think well hey look i'm going to be sedentary forever really i've got kids work i drive a car all these things are driving sedentary lifestyle so Mm. i use exercise to sort of bridge that gap okay cool Mm. so actually this means that i've got to be exercising forever and as we get older i want to make sure that i can get up and down the stairs i want to make sure that i can be fit active healthy have a good health span so again oh okay exercise actually can improve all those things plus it can improve things like cognitive function aging all these things okay so now it takes the stress off burning calories per unit of time 
and the stress of, you know what, actually, if I jump up and down on boxes all the time and drop to the floor, flop to the floor doing burpees, probably actually that's not how I want to be training ongoing. I'll do it like once or twice a week, but I'll also do some yoga. I'll also just get out for a walk, just going to watch what I eat, make sure that I sleep. And all of a sudden it takes the pressure off fat loss and Mm -hmm. all these things. And it just becomes the way that you live your life as an exercising individual, not as a person who's trying to lose body fat or gain muscle, just the Mm -hmm. person that's in it forever. And if you Mm -hmm. can get comfortable with that message, you'll be successful. And if you want to have hit in your training and you're happy with that message, fantastic go for it and and ultimately this this podcast and what what i started out by saying is it's not to dismiss anything it's not to say don't do things it's about empowering people with the knowledge to then make their own decisions about what they want to do for their body and i think that is is at the heart of everything that i try and practice as a coach and i know you do too you know i'm not going to sit here just as we started talking about and talking absolutes don't do this you have to do that that's never never how i work and i know you don't either it's just about okay here's the facts and this is what you can do with it. And, and maybe you might choose to do this and maybe you might not. But but I'm going to let you know that the, the facts so that you can make a decision for yourself in whatever way serves you best. And that's why you're an awesome coach. <laughs> and that, you that are is, too. <laughs> that's, that's what you can do. It's like it's not our job to influence what my clients do. It's for us to help manage those sort of balls. If, if I've got clients yeah. come to me and I've got loads of clients to do here and they really enjoy it. And it's my job as their coach to make sure they understand rest and recovery, make sure the hit days falls on the right day. So it's not on a day that they're really stressed out with work and they're not doing it because it's like, oh my God, I'm really stressed out. I need to do something to kind of like blast my body or I've eaten poorly. It's our job to sort of explain to people, these are the things that we can be doing. It hasn't got to be around guilt and all those sorts of things. There's Mm -hmm. no one best way of doing anything. It's your body, your life, your choice. But the problem is we're bombarded with messages. Sometimes we were allowing so-called fitness gurus to sway the way we think about exercise, our body and what we should do. So just like you said, just give the power back to people, let them decide for themselves. But just making sure it's off informed information and it's not off like Instagram one-liners. Yeah. Oh, Andy, thank you so, so much for your time. I'm honestly, I'm so pleased you managed to get this recorded because I'm going to be basically sharing this for the rest of my life as a as a podcast that I recommend people come and listen to. You are such a, a fountain of wisdom. And yeah, I'm just so grateful to have you in my life and, and, and helping me with my journey as a coach, but, but also on hand to come and do things like this where I can just use your brain and share the knowledge with lots of other people. Thank you very much. And you know, it's always a pleasure to work with you as much as I'm sure. Sh- happy I've helped you've inspired me as much as I've helped you for sure thank you thanks Andy thanks so much you so much for listening I really hope you enjoyed that episode I have a little request for you all if it's not too much to ask it really really helps if you rate review and subscribe to the podcast as it means that others can find it and hopefully gain from it too we have a new episode dropping every week so stay tuned and thanks for listening